Romans 8, verse 31, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written for your sake we are killed all day long we are counted as sheep for the slaughter yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life or angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. In Romans chapter 8... Paul outlines seven assurances that accompany salvation. We have a new position in verses 1 through 3. We have a new guest, the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of us. He he is living inside of us and we have the opportunity to allow him to control us in verses 9 through 14. We have a new adoption in verses 15 through 17 which means that we're in a new family and with a new family comes a new intimacy and with that intimacy with the father comes an inheritance in the son. We as believers have a new hope in verses 18 through 25. Yeah, there's pain, there's suffering, but there's also a future glory. We have a new prayer partner, the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of us in verses 26 through 27. The Holy Spirit prays with groanings that can't always be expressed in words. He pleads for us In harmony with God's will. We have a new confidence in verse 28. And the confidence that God is causing all things to work together for his purposes. And our good. And finally Paul says we have a new destiny. In verses 29 through 39. That destiny includes God's expressed goal. To make us like Jesus. And the plan to make us like Jesus. We're foreknown. We're predestined. We're called by the Father. We're justified in the Son. We're glorified by the Father in verse 30. Paul has given us a summary of our future. The steps that we take as we walk into the future. He out outlines our security and all attempts at accusation and condemnation that somehow we're not going to make it, that the believer is going to fail. 
We live in a fragile world. We can be disappointed. We live in a world where people will make promises to one another. Have you ever made a promise to someone and then failed to keep that promise? Has anyone ever made a promise to you and failed to keep their promise? In Romans chapter 8, we learn that God will keep his promise to the believer. That God loves us. That God sent Jesus to rescue us and save us and convert us and justify us and glorify us. But what about the years after our conversion and before the consummation? Will God walk out on us? We've been singing it. Your love never changes. You stay the same through the ages. We sing another song. Your love never fails. It never gives up. Is it true? Will God walk out on me? Will God break his promise? People make promises to love us, to stay with us, to always care for us. Is it possible that we sometimes say and do things that make it difficult? For us to keep our promises or for others to keep their promises towards us. The truth is, can I do something? Can I say something? Can I be something that will cause God to walk out, give up, abandon, abort, surrender, or forsake his promise? Can I do something that would cause God to walk out, give up, abandon his plan to make me like Jesus or accomplish the eventual glorification? Is there a test? Is there a trial that I'll face or am facing that God will say, I'm done with you? Paul argues in this passage That the believer is not only predestined for glory, but also preserved for glory. All who begin in Christ will finish in Christ. A hundred percent of those he foreknows. One hundred percent of those he predestines. One hundred percent of those he glorifies. It's like the Marines. No one is left behind. And so is there some road? Is there some avenue? Is there some path that the believer takes that will cause that believer? believer to forfeit eternal life, surrender grace, abandon God, Paul will walk down one road and then another road and then another road and he's going to discover something that each road is guarded by the grace of God. Look what it says in verse 31, the Lord's commitment to withholding nothing from us. In verse 31 it says, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? What things? When he says, what then shall we say to these things? He's actually talking about everything that he's talked about in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and all of chapter 8. But more specifically, he is talking about the golden chain of redemption that he's 
focused on in verses 28 and 29 and 30. What shall we say to to these things? What things? God is causing all things to work together for good for those who love him. God knows us in advance. God calls us. God's committed to us. He has a plan. He's making us like Jesus. He's going to glorify us. And so when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's also addressing the doubter. He's addressing the person who's sitting in their seat or listening to this passage going, but what if God isn't for us? What if God is against us? During the Civil War, a panicked soldier came up to President Lincoln and said, Oh, Mr. President, I'm most anxious that the Lord should be on our side. And Lincoln replied, that gives me no anxiety at all. The thing I worry about is being on the Lord's side. Lincoln was right in his application of the moment. If God is for us, you're asking the wrong question. The the right question isn't, Is God for us? He's already demonstrated that he's for us. Remember the whole gospel. He's for us in what way? He's made a plan. He's made a provision. He's provided a savior. What will it take to convince you that God is for you? The true spirit-filled Christian doesn't have to worry about whether or not he or she is on God's side. If you ask yourself the question, am I in Christ, then God is for you. Have I received Christ? Am I saved? Then God is for you. Well, how can I be sure that I'm in Christ? Well, think about it. Are you in rebellion? Are you in sin? Are you living a persistent lifestyle of disobedience? If you're In sin, and if you're in rebellion and you're living in a persistent lifestyle of disobedience and rebellion, you have every right to question your commitment. If you are in Christ, you can write your name next to verse 31. You can say, what then shall I say to these things? If God is for me. And it's okay to write your name right there for me. If you're in Christ, then he's for you. Now, I want you to do the math here. In verse 26, the spirit is for us. In verse 31, the father is for us. In verse 34, the son is for us. If the father is for you and the son is for you and the spirit is for you, I don't know what else to say. How do you know? How can you have such confidence? How can you have such assurance? Paul will give three arguments. Number one, God promises to withhold nothing, to supply everything we need in order to take care of us, in order to see us through in this thing called life, in this walk called Christianity, in coming close to Jesus in verse 32. Number two, God promises to allow nothing to condemn us in verses 33 and 34. And number three, God promises to allow nothing to separate us from his love. 
in verses 35 through 37. The confidence and the assurance that Paul gives, again, is based on those three arguments. God's not going to withhold anything from me. God promises to allow nothing to condemn me. God promises nothing will separate me. In verse 32, look what it says. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He begins the first part of his argument. And the first part of his argument is rooted and grounded and established. Not in your sacrifice, but in the son's sacrifice. He uses the illustration of the sacrifice of Jesus. Let me help you understand Paul's argument. He is arguing from what we call the lesser to the greater. Paul is saying, please try and understand and follow me. If God sacrificed his own son while we were still sinners, how much more will God give us freely all things as sons and daughters and saints? What indeed was God willing to sacrifice to ensure your salvation? Paul says, again, just do the math for a moment. If God has established reality and humanity and brought forth a savior and then allowed that savior to die for your sins, what else can we say? We've often referred to the heart-wrenching story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham, you'll remember, began his pilgrim walk with God. By giving up his father. And then Abraham's high point comes when he's asked to sacrifice his son. And most of us cringe when we read the story. How this man is willing to submit himself and obey God. In the belief that God himself will raise his son from the dead. And you'll remember the story. He's getting ready to plunge the knife into the chest of his son. And you hear the words, lay not thine hand upon the lad, the angel told Abraham. Neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. In Genesis chapter 22 verse 12. The Hebrew word translated withheld. In the Greek Septuagint is the same word translated spare that's used here in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. Abraham did not spare Isaac. And God knew that there was nothing that Abraham wouldn't do. Paul argues God did not spare Jesus. I'm going to suggest to you that Paul's drawing a deliberate parallel. What would Abraham hold back from God if he was willing to sacrifice his own son? What will God hold back if he was willing to sacrifice his own son? Refusing to spare him. Refusing the prayer in the garden. Refusing the tears as he wept. 
refusing the torture and the beating, refusing the nails and the cross. What would God hold back if he's willing to sacrifice his own son? Again, what things do you think Paul is referencing? How shall he, God, not with him, Jesus, also freely give us all things? Think about what you're reading and think about the context. The context is assurance. The context is security. The context is, I'm here at the beginning. I'll be here in the middle. I'll see you through to the end. I heard the story of a conversation between a hen and a hog. They passed a church and they read the billboard. It had noted the pastor's sermon. How can we help the poor? After a moment, the hen said, let's offer them a ham and egg breakfast. The hog replied, that's easy for you to say. All you have to do is make a contribution. You're asking me to make a commitment. Oh, yes, indeed. God isn't just making a contribution to your eternal state, to the circumstances of your life and the circumstances of your heart and the circumstances of your future. He's giving you Jesus John Phillips tells the story, a wealthy Roman had a son who broke his heart and a slave who commanded his admiration. He decided on his deathbed to disinherit his son and leave everything to his slave, Marcellus. He drew up the papers. He called in his son to tell him what he had done. I have decided to leave everything to the slave, Marcellus. He said, however, you may choose one item, one piece of property from my estate for yourself. And the son said, I choose Marcellus. (laughs) When we choose Christ, we inherit all that God has set aside for Christ. You see, God has chosen Jesus to be both Lord and Savior and King. And so when you have Christ, you have everything that Christ has for the future. And look what it says, the Lord's contract to dismiss all condemnation. We continue in verse 33, look what it says. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now remember what a charge is. It's an accusation. The Greek word is a word which means literally to call in or to bring a charge or to write an impeachment. Now thank God Christ is our lawyer. And thank God That God is our judge. And so if we have Christ and if we are in Christ, then we have nothing to worry about. So Paul says, what is the charge? 
I want you to pause for a moment and I want you to think about the worst charge or accusation that could be made against you. Hypocrisy, duplicity, inconsistency. Have you heard the voices whisper in your ear? You don't deserve to be saved. You don't deserve to be saved. You don't deserve to be saved. But justified means declared righteous in Christ. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who are God's elect? No, it's not the conservative wing of the Republican Party. That's the wrong answer. God's elect are those who are chosen in Christ. Accepted in Christ. Who might bring the charge against you? The most famous accuser, of course, in the Bible is Satan. In Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we have an accuser who accuses us day and night before our Father. Satan might accuse you. Your conscience might accuse you. Your wife or your husband or your children might accuse you. Your friends and your enemies can accuse you. Your church can even bring charges against you and what do they have to say do they bring a constant parade of your deepest failures and your most notorious sins and what of pain and what of doubt what of inconsistency what about this nagging constant sense whether or not the Bible is true, whether or not the gospel is true, whether or not all of the things that you've devoted yourself to are true. And you're in big trouble if you're If your accuser's opinion, if your accuser's evaluation, if your accuser's charges are the basis of your justification. But Paul writes, it is God who justifies. And if you're saved by the absence of accusation, if you're saved by the absence or the presence of a clear conscience, which you're not. If you're saved by the absence or the presence of good deeds, which you're not. If you're saved by the absence or presence of material prosperity, which you are not. If you are saved on the basis of keeping or breaking the rules, which you are not. If you could, in your wildest dreams, justify yourself. Or condemn yourself then how are we to interpret the phrase it is God who justifies? If God can justify, then God can also not justify. It is God who justifies. What have we already learned? He justifies on the basis of Jesus, on the basis of the love of Jesus, on the life of Jesus, on the walk of Jesus, on the fellowship of Jesus, on the sacrifice of Jesus, on the resurrection of Jesus. It is God who justifies and it is God who condemns. On what basis does he justify Jesus? On what basis does he condemn? In order to answer that question, we have to 
Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. R. Kent Hughes writes, and I quote, If accusations are brought against us, we need not fear. For the charges are silenced by the uprised, pierced hands of our intercessor. If we are to be condemned, it will have to be over Christ's dead and now resurrected body, which actually is the basis for our salvation. How is that for confidence? Unquote. Okay, Mr. Smarty Pants. What if God accuses me? What if God condemns me? Okay, let's think this through. Unless you come to Christ, you're condemned already. Remember what it says in the most famous passage in all of the Bible? You learned it as a child. You've seen it at at the end of the end zone at every football game. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. But the very next sentence says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, it says in verses 17 and 18. In verse 18, He who believes in him is not condemned He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is why we keep constantly, repetitively, over and over and over again, ask you, are you in Christ? Have you come to Christ? If you come to Christ, you believe and receive Christ. Why would God condemn you? For God to accuse us after saving us would mean that salvation is a failure and we are still in fact in our sins. When God declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ, the judicial pronouncement never changes. And so Paul argues in verse 3, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also makes intercession for us. William MacDonald writes about this verse quote. Another challenge rings out. Is there anyone else to condemn us? No one? Because Christ has died for the defendant. He's been raised from the dead. He is now at the right hand of God interceding for him. If the Lord Jesus to whom all judgment has been committed does not pass sentence on the defendant but rather prays for him then there's no one else who could have a valid reason For condemning him, unquote. Do you remember in John 8 when the woman 
who is taken into adultery is thrown at the feet of Jesus and the religious persecutors basically said, the law says to stone her, what do you say? Do you remember Jesus' statement? Well, it's true, the law does say stone her. So let's do something. The person who is without sin, let them cast the first stone. By the way, at that very moment, who's the only person in the crowd who has the right to throw the rock? It's Jesus. Jesus had every right to pick up the rock and throw it at her, but he doesn't. And the oldest from the youngest began to leave. And the woman looked up at him. And he said, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, they've all gone away. And then he said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. People have accused Jesus of being soft on sin. But Jesus, within a few weeks of making that statement, will find himself facing a cruel cross where he will die for that lady's transgression. But when he's dying for that lady's transgression, he's also dying for your transgression. And so look what it says in verse 35, the Lord's covenant to allow nothing to separate us. In verse 35, look what it says, who shall separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Remember, when he asks the question, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It begs another question. The other question, of course, is, is it true? Does he really love me? Does Jesus love me? Does he care about me? Does he truly love me? Paul answers that question earlier in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. But God, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, when we're lost, when we're separated, when we're estranged from God, Christ dies for us much more than having now been justified by his own blood we shall be saved from the wrath which the wrath through him and so we answer the question well yeah he does love us now we address his issue what shall separate us from that love Paul is asking the question can God fail And it's okay for you to say it. Me. Can he fail me? Will he fail me? Will he let me down? The answer is no. God cannot fail. I'm willing to believe that, Gino. What I'm not willing to believe, at least at this point, is can I fail him? Well, let's let's look and see what Paul has to say. Can we fail God? Is there some trial? Is there some test? Is there some 
circumstance? Is there some sickness? Is there some disease? Is there some mental or emotional or personal failure that can separate me, that can cause me to detach from the love of God? Paul offers some suggestions. Well, let's look at tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sore. Is there some tribulation? Remember Jesus said, in the world you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Well, let's look at distress. The word is very, very interesting in the original language. Steno, chorea. In the Greek language, stenos means narrow. Chora means space. Stenachoria means a narrow place, a narrow space. The literal meaning is the place that's closed in. We might call this the tight squeeze. Have you ever called out to God? Lord, I'm in a, I'm in a tight place. Lord, I'm in a narrow place. Lord, Lord, I need more room. Then you're describing that word. We have an expression in our culture and society. We use the term in a bind. Have you ever said to someone, I find myself in a bind? It means to be hemmed in by the hard circumstances. When you find yourself in trouble, can being in the narrow space, being in the closed space, being in the troubled space, Well, how about the word persecute, which means to follow hard after, like hot pursuit. Shall persecution, if the devil is hard on your heels, if your enemy is hard on your heels, if the world in which you're living in is hard on your heels. Remember what we often say, it's not paranoia if they really are after you. The word famine means the absence of, of food. Nakedness means no clothing. It's indecency on parade. For Paul, it meant inadequate clothing when you find yourself in a cold place. The word peril means risk, danger. It is true that we may not have the same perils that Paul faced, but we face perils. Physical perils spiritual perils. And again, Paul isn't offering a laundry list of theological exceptions. Paul is offering a list of autobiographical circumstances. Paul is a great and deep thinker. He is a weighty theologian, but I think that Paul is speaking about the human condition, the human being who has to come to grips with all of the perils and all of the dangers, because the truth is he has faced all of these circumstances and more. And so for the person who says, You have no idea what you're talking about. You've never faced the circumstances. You've never faced the perils. You've never faced the persecutions and the tribulations. You have no idea. It's possible. Possible. 
But we live in a broken world, don't we? We live in a painful world where we lose family and we lose friends and we have diagnosis of cancer and we have issues and we have setbacks and we have difficulties. And Paul is suggesting that I've gone down each and every one of these roads, all of the deprivation, all of the pain, all of the limitation, all of of the storms. And at the end of each road and at the end of each journey, there was God and there was his faithfulness and there was his love. Paul has faced all of these circumstances and more. No wonder in verse 36 he says, As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Do you understand what he's doing? He's quoting the scripture. He's quoting Psalm 44, 22. He's reminding the Roman reader of the real harsh reality of what it meant to be a Christian in the first century, in the Roman Empire. The heartache, the pain, the trial, the sorrow. For your sake we're killed all day long. Who? God's people. Who? The covenant people. What's happening to them? Paul is reminding them, there's nothing new for the saint. God doesn't shelter his people from hardship. God knows there are difficulties. But he also knows that there are opportunities. He's already talked about them. The opportunities for spiritual growth in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, just in case you forgot where it was. In Romans 8, 28, Paul assured us that those difficulties aren't working against us. They're working for us. In Romans 8, 28, he's assured us that God will permit the trial for our good and his glory. We endure the trial for his sake. Will God abandon us or forsake us because we're experiencing the trial, because we're experiencing the suffering, because we're experiencing the hardship, or will he allow it for our good and will he allow it for our glory? You see, the truth is, your experience of pain, setback, hardship, difficulty, Sorrow, it really will make you bitter or better. It will make you bitter or better. You will say, well, I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe Christianity anymore. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I don't believe knowing him and loving him is going to be a part of my life anymore. Why not? Well, you know, I had a friend who got sick. Or my mother died. Or my father died. Or there was a tragedy or a difficulty. But the one who finds shelter in Jesus finds the tangible presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And for the person who says, well, God must not really love me because he sees me in my pain and he sees me in my sorrow and he sees me in my misery and persecution and oppression and opposition and they don't see themselves in Christ. They see themselves in pain, in persecution, in oppression, in opposition. But Paul invites you to see yourself in Christ. As a matter of fact, in verse 37, it says, Yet in all these things, in all of these things, we're more than conquerors. 
through him who loved us. The original language is full of superlatives. For in all these things we are super conquerors. Not just winners, but super winners. Not just victors, super victors. All of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the hardship has given to us all of the joy, all of the victory, all of the overcoming. Paul is giving us the idea, we win against all of these things. We win over and over and over again. Verse 37 could be the life verse for the New York Yankees. Yet in all these things we're more than conquerors. It's one thing to win, but really, how many championships do you have to win before you would consider yourself to be a winner? You win, you win, and then you win again. For Paul, it all depends on who's keeping score and how the score is finally reckoned in the end. Who is keeping score in your life? It's God. Who's keeping score? Not of your tragedy, but of your victory. When Chrysostom was brought before the Roman emperor, Chrysostom was an early church father who loved the Lord. And he was brought before the emperor of Rome. And the emperor threatened to banish him if he remained a Christian. And Chrysostom replied, thou canst not banish me from the world. The emperor said, why not? He says, it's my father's house. But I will slay you, said the emperor. (laughs) Nay, thou canst not. He said, for my life is hidden with Christ and God. In other words, he's saying, if you kill me, I'll never be more alive ever. I will take away thy treasures. Chrysostom replied, nay, but thou canst not. For my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. The emperor screamed, but I will drive thee from man, and thou shalt have no friend left. And Chrysostom said, now thou canst not, for I have a friend in heaven from whom thou canst not separate me. I defy thee, for there is nothing that thou canst do to hurt me. Unquote. What do you do with somebody like that? Look what Paul writes. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. At the beginning of verse 38 where he says, for I am persuaded. Another translation rightly says, I stand convinced. You could translate this, I am certain. But some of you are unconvinced. Some of you remain unpersuaded. Paul writes, Jesus Christ loves us. Jesus gives us the victory. Well, if I do this, God will do that. No, this is not a promise with conditions attached. 
No one is left behind. Every person who starts with God in Jesus will finish with God in Jesus. Philip Melanchthon died in 1560 and he had verse 31 on his dying breath. He said, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Exactly 100 years later, John Bunyan sat at his desk in a deep, depression, wondering if he could go on, worrying about the future. When the same text came to his rescue, he wrote, I remember, he says, that I was sitting in a neighbor's home and I was very, very sad. Then that word came suddenly to me. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Bunyan wrote, That was a help to me. Paul was persuaded that death, our greatest enemy, and greatest fear, couldn't separate us from the love of God. Death's cold, corrupting power can't steal in and steal away the love of God or kill Christ's presence in your soul. Paul states death in all of its cold and cruel finality He wonders, can this block, can this steal, can this take away, can this vanquish God's love? He says, no. Well, what about life? What about the beginning of life and the middle of life and the end of life? What about hardship in life? What about insanity? What about a broken heart? What about a failed marriage? What about the death of a loved one? What about a financial crisis? What about pain? Are these cosmic wedges that can pry you away from God's love? What about suffering? What about abuse? How about ignorance? What about bad theology? What is it that can create a wedge that can make his love go away? Paul writes, nor angels. He speaks of cosmic powers and supernatural realms and finds the answer to be no. Paul has visited the living, but now he'll visit the dead. And now the supernatural. He visits the living. He visits the dead. He visits the supernatural. He says, nor principalities, benevolent or malevolent, human or divine, nor powers, governments, churches, organizations, nor things present. What is real in this real world, nor things to come. What is the real and true world of the future? He imagines a world that can bring about the separation from the love of God. And then he imagines a world in the future where you get somehow separated from the love of God. He travels through time and space. He's looking for an obstacle so big that it'll make God's love go away. And he can't find it. My friend Steve Mays who's the pastor of Calvary Chapel in South Bay, is one of the most remarkable human beings I've ever met. I first met him when I was a teenager. And we were in the house ministry. I 
literally joined a hippie commune. He wrote a book called Overwhelmed by God, talking about the, furious, the serious challenges that he faced and the setbacks that he, that he faced. Steve Mays, as a young man, was sexually molested by a trusted teacher. He turned to drugs and violence to try and escape this incessant shame and pain that overwhelmed him. And in his testimony in the book, he speaks of turning to a life filled with guns and filled with violence and filled with drugs. For two years of his life, he never brushed his teeth. He was shot. He was arrested. For a brief time, he was wanted by the FBI. He was kicked out of his motorcycle gang. He started sleeping in gutters. And he became homeless. And one day, a husband and a wife named Henry and Shirley discovered Steve in a gutter. He writes... They invited me to their home. They allowed me to take a shower. They provided me with a meal. Steve writes, quote, Shirley had a vision of hope for me and told me that she saw Jesus in my eyes. She and Henry had been on their way to church and invited me to go with them, and which I surprisingly did. And they took Steve to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and Steve heard the message of God's love and God's hope and God's grace and God's mercy. And he became the pastor of Calvary Chapel in South Bay. And about 9,000 people go to his church every week. No condemnation. No obligation. No frustration. No separation. Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, wait a New York minute. Are you saying a person can know that they're saved and rest in that assurance? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Paul believed a person could know if they're saved and rest in the assurance. Peter believed that you could know that you're saved and rest in the assurance. John the Apostle wrote that you could know that you're saved and rest in the assurance. In 1 Peter 1.3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. John the Apostle, 1 John 5, 12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you would know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You know, it's one thing if Paul believed it. It's another thing if Peter believed it. It's another thing if John believed it. But listen to what Jesus himself says in John 5, 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
And so where do you find it? Where do you find the love of God? Look what it says in verse 39. Nor height, things above, nor depth, things below, nor any other created thing. That pretty much means everything other than the uncreated thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You sing the song. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing passage of Scripture. What a glorious source of security and comfort. What an amazing place that we can go for confidence and assurance. That your love never fails, it never gives up. Lord, even as we sang, you stay the same through the ages. And that your love never changes. There may be pain in the night. But joy comes in the morning. And Heavenly Father... I pray that each and every person could with Paul say, I'm persuaded. I'm quite convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, the Lord. Are you in Jesus? Hallelujah. If you're not, you can be. It's as simple as turning from your sin, turning to your Savior, and allowing Jesus to be your Lord. Let's stand.